ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Back to Trucker podcast. I'm James Rister Bowen here with Justin Super Trucker Martin. And before we get started, I want to thank OTR Solutions for sponsoring this podcast. Their factoring programs and solutions have taken supporting trucking companies to a whole new level. Let me redo that. Before we get started, I want to thank OTR Solutions for sponsoring this podcast. Their factoring programs and solutions have taken supporting trucking companies to a whole new level. I can do a whole podcast with everything these guys bring to the table and the success stories that come from working with them. But for now, head on over to otrsolutions.com and slash BTU to learn more, connect with our dedicated BTU team. Justin, how are you doing today, sir? Doing good. I'm really excited to talk with our guest today. Um, you know, they're putting on a good fight uh, against a lot of this uh, stuff going through the, the House and the Senate right now. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, we're getting a little bit uh, deep in the swamp, as they say. We're going to be uh, talking with a good friend of ours from the OIDA, the Owner Operator Independent Driver Association. So, might as well welcome Bryce out to the floor. Yep, thank you so much for having me on and inviting Oida on here to talk today. My name is Bryce Bungeon. I'm the Director of Legislative Affairs here in Oida's Washington, D.C. office. So, in my role, uh, I'm responsible for being up on Capitol Hill, fighting against a lot of the crazy ideas that we see coming out of there, um, but at the same time, trying to be proactive in what we're doing. So, listening to our members, taking their priorities, and trying to get lawmakers to actually do something good. Uh, it's not just me here in our Washington, D.C. office. We have um, you know, a, a whole team here that helps with the legislative side of things, but also on the regulatory side, on the agency side. So we have, we have all the bases uh, covered with what we're doing. It's funny. You, so I always said OOIDA, like it's an initialism, and you're saying OIDA, like it's an acronym. So what, which are you guys? OIDA, OIDA, whichever, you know, it's always difficult. It's a, it's a little bit of a mouthful when you're trying to make the quick introductions with, yeah. uh, you know, lawmakers or staff, you know, owner, operator, independent drivers association doesn't roll off the tongue quite as easily. So <laughs> whatever works. Yeah, they, they, they love their acronyms up there. Yes, I know. Yeah. So what do you guys, what's priority number one right now for OIDA? Yeah, priority number one for us is truck parking and expanding the um, mm. truck parking capacity across the country. This has been an issue, top issue for us for you know a long time. Um, but even over the last few years, we've picked up steam, picked up momentum. Uh, you know, just before the pandemic started, um, we had our house bill uh, from Congressman Boss and Congressman Angie Craig introduced to uh, dedicate funding for truck parking and establish a competitive grant program for expanding truck parking capacity. So that has continued to work its way through the House. Um, Earlier this year, that legislation uh, passed the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee. And just just this past week, we finally got legislation introduced in the Senate. So Senators Cynthia Lummis and Mark Kelly uh, introduced companion legislation to that House bill. So uh, we are working, you know, as hard as we can to get this across the finish line, but that's definitely priority number one for us right now. Bryce, how is the vote whipping going on for for that companion bill? Is it uh, looking good on our end about you know possibly getting that passed and getting into the uh, getting it back in for the, the the next step to get it uh, combined with the House bill to get it sent up to the White House? Mm-hmm. So I think. You know, we're still early right now, but I think we're in a good position with the legislation. The toughest part, I think, in the Senate uh, at this point was getting the legislation introduced. It's truck parking has been one of those issues all along where, 
you talk to lawmakers and, you know, you really don't hear too much opposition. You might hear, you know, some members, some members are opposed because they don't want to spend, you know, just generally opposed to spending good money. Some don't want to be doing something that's seen as starting a new government program, but by and large, lawmakers have been supportive of this. So the next step is going to be whipping those lawmakers and getting them to co-sponsor the bill. Um, that's what we're going to be doing over the next few weeks here. And with the start of the new Congress, uh, legislation will need to be reintroduced. But, um, you know, we uh, will be getting members on that bill. So I think we, we've definitely got a lot of work to do. But I think it's uh, it's something where we're going to be able to make progress. So my, my question with the parking stuff is, where is this parking going? Are these going to be currently existing lots or is this just going to be a pile of money that everybody can dig into to try and upgrade parking in their areas? Because we have done articles already um, on back to truck up where, you know, you have a local town that's got a small mom and pop truck stop and then a pilot or flying J wants to come into town Mm -hmm. and the entire town is up against, you know, they're, they're they're in an uproar. They they don't want the truck parking in their area. So what is this money actually going to do? Even if the town says we don't want the trucks here. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's a huge problem and something we hear about all the time. It's something we see covered in Landline, which is our, our magazine and our uh, media website. But, uh, you know, the legislation at large, kind of, to, to take a step back, it's a, you know, it's a competitive grant program, which means it's going to be a pot of money set aside specifically for parking and states and local governments and other eligible public entities can apply for that funding. Um, and so what we're hoping for is that there will be enough interest at the state and local level to address this issue. Um, and there will be an interest in this money because it is set aside from other highway funding. One of the challenges with truck parking is uh, it's always competing with other priorities and other interests. And, you know, anytime you have politicians, lawmakers, you know, state DOTs, they're going to want to be doing things that benefit their constituents and the people who live in their state or their area. Um, so truck parking falls at the bottom. But with this set aside program, one of the hopes we have is that, um, you know, we'll have enough buy in from these state and local governments uh, to to really want to get something done and try and solve this problem. And that's going to be really important to overcome some of those objections or those concerns that we hear about all the time, uh, you know, from from local governments or from, you know, residents of an area. So I think part of the hope is by just having this this separate program and really standing it up, there will be people who really see this as a problem and want to want to work toward a solution. Uh, I also think too the the other thing that's important is the the legislation is pretty it's pretty wide open in how the funding can be used to expand capacity. Um, I will say and make clear that the legislation and the funding is to be focused on expanding capacity. So actually building new truck parking spaces or, you know, reconfiguring a parking lot um, to add more truck parking spaces. But the funding, you know, it doesn't say you have to build a new rest area or you've got to build an entirely new lot. It could be that uh, a state or local government sees an opportunity to reconfigure or maybe expand an existing rest area and add more truck parking spaces. So getting back to your question of how do you overcome local concerns? Well, if you've already got a a truck parking facility, then, you know, expanding or reconfiguring a little bit to add those additional spaces. Hopefully that's an easier way of expanding capacity than having to start from scratch or or put in a new 
a new rest area facility. So, you know, overall, our message to lawmakers has been we know there's not one size fits all solution. Um, you know, every region of the country is different. You have uh, rural, you have urban, you have everything in between. And we want to make sure that, you know, uh, whoever's looking at addressing truck parking, um, you know, they're able to do it and the program can actually get done solutions that work for them. The decision of whether or not to like upgrade existing parking versus like just building brand new parking, you know, we're seeing that right now with the West Virginia Turnpike. They're closing all truck parking Mm -hmm. along the turnpike while they're upgrading the rest areas that are there. And by the time it's all said and done, it's only going to be an an additional like 10 spots, I think. Was that how much it was, Rooster? Uh, They're closing all but one. They're closing Tamarack, which is the big one. We all know at Finley. And they're closing Uh up, uh, I believe it's Morrison. And Morrison's getting like 10 more spots. Tamarack's getting like 20, I believe. But it's, you know, taking some of this infrastructure, act money, you know, like we see down at Florida, you know, they're adding like, what, 30 spots in Florida and, you know, redoing a couple of truck stops out in West Texas. And it's really just, I don't even call it a Band-Aid on a, yeah. on, on a carotid artery puncture, you know. It's just uh, just crazy, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh We've seen We're talking to a lot of drivers that's that still, you know, Indiana is like one of the worst places right now. All the rest areas out there are really tiny. Yeah. So everybody resorts to parking on the shoulder or on the on and off ramps. And, you know, to be really cynical about it, if I was like local law enforcement out there, I wouldn't want uh, this extra truck parking because those guys are basically dollar signs. I can I can write tickets for every single night. The only decent truck parking, I hate to say it's right outside Indianapolis on the southwest side right by the airport, right by that big FedEx facility. So everything else is like small and like late 70s, early 80s truck stops with uh, most of the parking spots not even designed for a 70-foot combination. Yeah, that's a good point. I used to go down to Crane, Indiana all the time. The only truck parking uh, before you left Indianapolis was that pilot there on the south side. And that wasn't – yeah, it's funny. Yeah, there are short spots out there. I never noticed – I never thought of that until now. (laughs) Yeah, and I think one of the things that's really important about our, our efforts here is that this would, you know, this program would be established and set up, and under the legislation that's been introduced, it would be seven hundred fifty-five million dollars over four years. But what's really important about that is you're setting up this program. That's something that's going to, you know, exist, and it'll be here for the next four years, and then after that, the idea is to reauthorize it and keep it going. So. I think that by really creating a federal lead on this issue and setting an example and making sure that the government and uh, you know federal dollars are focused on this, hopefully that encourages places to think a little bit bigger uh, and have a little bit about a little bit more certainty about um, about moving forward on truck parking solutions. Uh, but you know what you're describing is also part of the challenge that we face on this issue, which is, you know, we can do as much as we can on Capitol Hill at the federal level. Um, but regardless, a lot of those decisions are still up to, you know, state and local officials and decision makers. So and we still we have outreach to those, uh, you know, state and local governments as well. But it's it, it's it's difficult. And that's why we've, um, you, know, you know, we've tried to try to take this federal lead and focus at the federal level uh, with the hopes that by setting this example, they'll you know, think a little bit bigger and go bigger on their solutions. Yeah, and I hear a lot of talk from veteran drivers saying, you know, oh, you just need to pre-trip better. You know, there's there's no parking shortage. It's just, you know, you got to trip plan better. 
And I tell them like, look, the, the, the numbers are out. There's 11 trucks out there for every one spot available. The difference is you guys are just planning your routes different than everybody else. If everybody planned their trips exactly the same way that you did, you'd also be out mm-hmm. of a spot too, just like everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. I, that, that's definitely true. And we know that the, you know, the number of trucks on the road and the miles driven is only going to continue to increase. Um, and, and I think it's also too, just given how diverse the industry is, we say this all the time is that, you know, over 90 percent of motor carriers have 20 trucks or fewer or fewer than 20 mm-hmm. trucks. And so, um, you know, if you have a, you know, large mega carriers, they have different types of drivers, different profile drivers than those smaller carriers and owner operators. And so um, it, it's uh, in order to make it work for everybody and trying and to, and to try and help drivers across the industry. You know, that's why we just believe it's important to expand that capacity. Yeah, and those mega carrier lots can get full too. You know, when I was at Schneider, I'd be at an operating center in Gary or Indianapolis, and they fill up too. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and the other thing I, I think is worth mentioning too. You know, uh, I know I think we talked about this a little bit before uh, before coming on, but at OOIDA, we we have about one hundred fifty thousand members across the country. About eighty percent of our members are owner operators, um, and that's you know uh, one truck operators or sometimes small carriers. But about 25% of our members are employee drivers too. And that's where the, you know, the independent drivers part of our name comes from. So while, you know, kind of our, our bread and butter member, if you will, our owner operators, we're still also looking out for company drivers and employee drivers. Um, and so we keep that in mind on this parking issue and, you know, any other issues that we work on is how can we make the, make the profession better for all drivers, make it better for everyone who's out there behind the wheel. So while it's you know, focused on the small carrier, small business side, it's, it's for, for everyone who's driving truck. Yeah. So um, getting away from the parking here. So I, I, like I said, mm-hmm. before we got started, I was always a company driver and I've, been, yeah. I've gone through every kind yeah. of pay scale and pay rate possible uh, in my time behind the wheel. Mm-hmm. I've been paid by the mile. I've been paid percentage. Uh, I was salary and, uh, most recently at the postal service, I was paid per hour plus overtime after eight hours. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm a big fan of this, uh, guaranteed overtime for truckers act. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about yeah. uh, your guys' push on getting this passed? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great topic to move to talking about how we're looking out for employee drivers as well as owner operators and this, the guaranteeing overtime for truckers act has got truckers act. Um, this is something, this legislation that's been introduced in the house and the Senate this year, this is the first time, uh, we've seen this legislation introduced. It's another issue where we've worked on it for a long time, but we're finally making more progress on it. Um, by way of background, as I'm sure a lot of people listening know the fair labor standards act or the FLSA is the law that, you know, kind of generally governs wages, you know, working conditions, working hours, things like that uh, at the federal level. And for the most part, employees are guaranteed overtime pay when they work over 40 hours in a week. But when the law was enacted way back in 1938, uh, truck drivers were exempted from that overtime guarantee. Uh, and given <laughs> all the changes that have happened in trucking and you know across the economy and the country more generally, uh, we think it's time for that to change. Uh, you know, that... Um, 
that prohibition or that, that exemption was put in place in part just to prevent drivers from working too many hours. Um, you know, don't want to incentivize drivers to drive as much as they can to get overtime for safety reasons. But, you know, given all the technology, all the tracking that's in the industry now, um, you know, it's not like drivers are going to be able to, to sneak away or figure out a way to, to pump some extra hours onto their clock. And on the contrary, what we've seen is drivers are now working 50, 60, 70 hours a week. Um, and we think that's in part because of this overtime exemption. Um, as, uh, as you mentioned, Justin, when you're, you know, all different kinds of pay rates, but when drivers are paid by the mile, uh, they're paid when they're moving. And if you're not moving, you're not getting paid. So for detention time, time stuck in traffic, everything like that. Um, you know, there's really no value placed on a driver's time. And so the thinking behind this legislation is that uh, it would eliminate that exemption that's under the, the FLSA and finally guarantee that drivers are paid overtime. And so finally, everyone else who's in the supply chain, whether it be uh, carriers, shippers, receivers, or whoever else, um, they know they're on the hook if they keep a driver waiting an extra two or three hours. So the, the thinking with this legislation um, is first and foremost, it's a matter of fairness. Um, we just don't think there's any reason that truckers should be paid any differently or their time should be valued any differently than any other blue collar worker or employee. Um, but there's, uh, you know, also the uh, kind of the, the efficiency side of it and the detention time side of it. For so long, you know, we know that detention time is a problem and that drivers are almost expected to give away two hours of their time for free, depending on what segment of the industry you're working in. Uh -huh. um, so instead of trying to go in and regulate detention time, we view this Scott Truckers Act as a way of letting, you know, letting the marketplace or kind of letting the supply chain figure out the issue. Because now, again, you're going to have to pay drivers if you, if you keep them waiting longer. So uh, we think it's important. We've got um, this is another a bill where we don't expect it to move before uh, to pass before the end of this Congress, frankly. But we're trying to build up as much support as we can on it. Yeah. And. I was never paying attention to any of this kind of stuff. I just was just always doing my job. But um, once I started yeah. with back the truck up and, you know, I'm arguing with drivers constantly, they're saying, you know, oh, this isn't going to work or, you know, whatever negative reasons they have. Um, you know, I, I start digging and I look at the numbers now and I was completely blown away by this number. So this is from the American Trucking Research Institute, ATRI. The average mm -hmm. miles driven per year per truck uh, in the past decade peaked in 2013. And that was an average of just under 120,000 miles per year. Uh, we don't have the 2022 numbers yet because we're still in the year. But the 2021 numbers right. were under 80,000 miles per year, which is like, it's, it's insane. And wow. so I'm, you know, I, I, I tell yeah. this to drivers and they're like, well, but I'm still driving such and such or I'm still doing this or that. And I, they don't know this, but they're literally at the top of the food chain. You know, just because you've got right. 100 drivers talking back and forth to each other on social media, there's still like m another couple million drivers out there that are, you know, way, way under them. Um, so I yeah. definitely see getting paid per mile is going to be suppressing wages for drivers going forward because just, you know, with fuel costs being what they are and detention rates or, or detention time really uh, being mm -hmm. you know, in in increased over time. It, it, you really need to start paying drivers per the hour per hour. I, I have no idea how this works with, you know, the owner operators, you know, cause those guys negotiate their, their contracts yeah. and everything ahead of time. Yeah. Um, but definitely for company drivers, I, I see pay per hour uh, being the way forward. 
Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, those are all really good points. And I think the, the one thing to just to make clear and uh, not that we have anything against pay per, per hour, but uh, you know, the, the bill wouldn't force any sort of, it wouldn't force people to pay by the hour, it wouldn't force carriers to pay by the hour, it wouldn't force them to pay any other way. Um, it, you know, to pay overtime, you basically just add up how much does an employee earn and take how many hours they work. Um, you divide that to find the, you know, how much they're making per hour, and then you pay that overtime premium for those hours worked over 40 so that you get that extra 50% for those hours worked over 40. So you can still work yeah. with mileage pay and, um, you know, you can calculate that number. And the only reason I throw that out there is because some of the opponents of this legislation have said, oh, it's too complicated or, oh, it would require, you know, re-regulation of rates in the industry. So um, we certainly know it would lead to changes, but we think those would be um, would be positive changes. And uh, even for owner operators, too, as you mentioned, owner operators generally are employees or independent contractors. But we know that if uh, you're increasing compensation for employees and helping to increase working conditions, improve working conditions for employees, those should help drivers across the board. So uh, while it's directly affecting employees, um, you know, it has a broader effect. And the the, the last thing I'll say, and, you know, the, the point you made about, um, you know, the connection between hours worked and how much drivers are making and kind of their perception of that. I remember um, recently ATA had their driver's, comp- driver's compensation study and kind of in talking about that, one of the things they pointed out was that when they started paying drivers more, they opted to work fewer hours. So I, I think that gets to your point, kind of the discussion here that, that, you know, people don't want to keep working just to keep working. You know, if you can pay people a fair wage and not have to work 70 hours to do it, people, I think, will take that opportunity. Yeah, that's, oh man, I, you're, you pushed a button there with me because that's like one of my biggest problems with the ATA <laughs> right now is when they, when they throw, it's like, yeah, of course, when you pay people more, they're going to work less. Like that's, you know, uh, they, they do this constantly where they're like, oh, the problem with the trucking, the American Trucking Association, they come out and they say, well, the biggest problem with the trucking industry right now is we're just not working the drivers hard enough. It's like, okay, come on. Mm-hmm. Um, but another thing yeah. too, like you mentioned, <laughs> yeah, oh, I mean, some, yeah. some drivers say that this would be hard to calculate and stuff. It's super easy. Every single truck right now, ha- well, with a very small exemption, everybody's got ELDs in the trucks now. You can easily mm-hmm. calculate how much mm-hmm. you know on duty time and driving time a driver is working, um, and then just pay yep. them by what what the ELD is saying. Because now, once you have it set up that way, the ELD is your friend, not your enemy. Right now, it's it's it's, mm-hmm. it's like I liken it to: um, Do you want C three PO in the truck, or do you want R two D two? And that's that's kind of how I, <laughs> I look at these things right now. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that those are all uh, those are all really good points and. Uh, to the point about, you know, I, I, I've, I'm sure carriers know and large carriers have figured out how many hours they expect their drivers to be working and how much they're compensating them and things like that. So uh, to say it would be, you know, it would kind of throw a wrench into everything. We find that hard to believe, too. We, you know, you have to imagine they know they kind of bake in how many hours they expect drivers will be waiting and everything like that. So they, they, yeah. they should already have an idea of kind of what all of these things are. And I, I tell all drivers take take all the total hours you you're, take all your on duty driving and on duty uh, in cab hours, and you know divide that by how much uh, your no take your gross pay divide it by all the hours you work for the week mm-hmm. and see how much you're getting see much you're, how much you're actually getting paid per hour right now and then it's an, it's any wonder why there's a, a trucking shortage right now because wages everywhere else have have increased they've 
gone up a little bit with trucking, but once you start breaking stuff down per hour, I think drivers are starting to realize just how, just how much they're getting screwed over right now. Yeah. All I was going to say was, I mean, those are the kind of things that we are, when we talk to, not to digress on a different topic, but you know, when lawmakers or anyone else kind of talks about a driver shortage, we try and put that picture there ahead of, you know, you, you might hear these top line numbers of what drivers are making, but once you see how many hours drivers are working and the kind of work it is where you're away from home, uh, you run those numbers and, you know, working construction or working retail or working something else, uh, you might be making exactly. the same per hour or maybe even a little bit less, but you get to go home yeah. every night. So, uh, yep. and you look at then turnover rates, you kind of put it all together and that, that that's how we try and paint that picture. And that's how we try and paint this, uh, you know, we're talking to, to lawmakers, this, um, you know, eliminating this overtime exemption is part of how you can make the profession more attractive. Yeah. How much are you willing to pay an employee to be away from their friends and family for weeks and months at a time? You know, it's people are yeah. looking at the numbers now and they're just they're saying, OK, it's not worth it. I'd rather be home. Yeah. Yeah. And, and while you've got me going on this, you know, one of the things that comes up when I talk to some offices sometimes is like, well, wouldn't this maybe raise costs for like consumers or raise costs in the supply chain? And it's kind of like, you know, you're getting so close to realizing the problem, which is, yes, it, it may, you know, we have a feeling there's probably a way to improve efficiency and not increase prices or things like that. That's not what we want to see happen. But if you're, you're, your business model, your supply chain relies on people giving their time away for free, then that's the problem right there. You know, right now drivers are paying for that, you know, it, it, someone's going to have to pay for this one way or another, whether it's uh, on the, you know, the, the consumer or uh, someone else figuring out how to run things more efficiently to stop wasting that time. Uh, you know, so the solution right now, the status quo is to have drivers keep giving away their time for free. And, you know, we understand, again, it would mean changes, but those things, those are things that those are changes that should happen. Yeah. And we see that with the rails right now, too. You know, they're throwing all this money they can at the guys and they're still they're still struggling to get new people into it because as bad as it is with trucking, the home time is even worse with the rail because even if they're home, they have to be on call 24 seven. If you haven't gone to otrsolutions.com slash BTU yet, here's your reminder. Not sure how to say it, but factoring these guys just makes sense. They're focused on driving your success and helping you grow your company. They've gone as far as offering custom business email address setups so you can negotiate better rates with brokers. There's just so much opportunity out there. And OTR is your ticket to success. So head on over to otrsolutions.com slash btu and check out their solutions. Going back and talk about this driver, driver shortage, uh, we always hear from ATA. We're 80,000 drivers short. Uh, 2030 will be 100, over 100,000 drivers short. How do they come up with this number? I've never been able to figure it out. Is it the drivers we need to keep the supply chain moving? Is it the number of drivers the companies themselves need to you know, stay profitable? Where does this... 80,000 number come from? I mean, uh, it's is like the closest guarded secret. Yeah, it's a good question. <laughs> no, that's a good question. And uh, to be honest, I don't think we've ever seen a real great explanation of that. Uh, as best <laughs> as I can recall, I think it's kind of calculated saying, here's how many, and, and I'm, I'm not 100% on this, but it's my, if I'm remembering correctly, it's basically, here's how many trucks we have and here's how many people it would take to, to fill these trucks, kind of. So it, it's not, um, you know, right. It's not how many drivers do we need to keep shelves stocked or how many drivers do we need to make sure that things keep getting there on time. It's kind of a, 
it's unclear, right? It, to oh, point, I know exactly so. how they came up. Uh, I know exactly how they came up with that. Um, Oliver Bateman, he's a, um, a podcaster, um, and he had a mutual friend of ours, Gordon McGill, on. He's a truck driver from Canada. Now he lives in Ithaca, New York. Mm-hmm. And they actually talked about this exact topic. And um, what Oliver had discovered was the ATA, they would, they, would call up, uh, they would call up these carriers, and they would say, hey, how many drivers do you guys employ? And they'd give them a number. And they would say, well, how many do you need? And the companies would say, well, if we can pay this much, we could hire this many drivers. And then they called, mm-hmm. you know, probably a hundred carriers or so. And they averaged all that out. And then just kind of, ex- what's the word I'm here? They, they basically crunched the math and, and tried to apply it to, yeah. the, to the industry uh, uh, as a whole. And, you know, that you can't just extrapolate numbers like that, you know, across all carriers in the industry. But that's what they're doing. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, and it's, I think the thing that we always tell, um, well, we tell people a lot of things when they ask about the driver shortage, but it's like, uh, you know, outside of the pandemic, have you ever gone to the store and, you know, not seen what you needed there? I mean, certainly we know there's been challenges with supply chains with, you know, the, the pandemic and everything else that's going on and has happened. But, you know, by and large, it's not because there's not enough drivers coming into the industry. Um, you look at FMCSA's own data and they're issuing 300, 400,000 new, new CDLs every year. So, mm-hmm. uh, if there's 80,000 drivers short, you know, we should have that covered every year. It's how do you keep people in the industry? Yeah. And I don't know the number, but I know in California, there are more holders of class A CDLs than there are job openings in the entire state. And I don't imagine that being mm-hmm. much different across all other states. Uh, and, and another one that mm-hmm. kind of blows a hole in that, in that driver shortage narrative is that if you have like these mega carriers with turnover rates of up to or over 150%, that's not a shortage. That's a surplus. You know, what other country, yeah. what other industry yeah, out there absolutely. can run on a turnover rate that high for this long and still keep going? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We, we point to those turnover rates. Um, yeah. I think the industry average is right around 90%, usually close to a hundred percent. And we tell people, could you imagine, if, you know, again, using congressional staffers as an example, could you imagine working in an office where, uh, <laughs> you know, you had that much turnover every year? What would it, what would it be like working in those conditions? And then kind of the follow-up question is, or the follow-up point you make is, you know, if you had 100% turnover in a congressional office, would you say there's a shortage of Hill staffers? Or is there something going on in that office where you might say, well, you know, maybe something's not quite right there. Maybe that's not the best place to work. So, you know, when you kind of put it in those terms, I think it helps to make a little more sense. We, we see that right now with Twitter. You know, Elon Musk comes along and fires, you know, a good chunk of the staff and it still chugs along. Nobody's screaming about there being a shortage of Twitter employees right now or software engineers. Yeah. Well, I, I yeah. guess they are. They are. They are kind of shouting about a, so, a shortage of software engineers. But that's that's a but it, it ties directly into this. It's it's rather than pay the employees, you know, level level wages now, they just have this idea of like, well, we'll just keep mm-hmm. importing you know, cheap labor from overseas with H-1B and H-2B visas. And it's like, okay, mm-hmm. eventually you're going to run out of other countries' software engineers or other countries' truck drivers. But it's just, they don't, they, they never, they never think those two or three steps ahead. It's just like, oh, how, how far can we keep this going? Yeah, I, I think a, a good, um, you know, a way to relate that to the, you know, the, the labor issues on Capitol Hill with, with uh, truck drivers and the alleged driver shortage um, we've always seen this push for expanding interstate drivers to under 21 drivers. 
you know, generally speaking, if you're talking about like going over a state line or something like that, sure, that can make sense. You know, we're based right outside of Kansas City, Missouri. So going from Kansas City, Missouri to Kansas City, Kansas is one thing. But opening up interstate from, you know, running all the way from Florida to Maine is something much different. And what we've said is, yeah, go ahead. Uh, you know, obviously we don't say go ahead, but if you were to to um, open it up to under 21 drivers, you'll bring some new drivers in. And then five years from now, I can guarantee you we'll be sitting here having these same conversations because you're not you're not going to be paying them any better or they're not going to be treated much better. Um, and they're going to be in and out of the industry and there'll be these same questions of how do we find drivers? Exactly. hundred percent. Because if you're still importing as many guys as you can, either from overseas or lowering the age or lowering the standards or, you know, trying to get from all these different labor pools. If there's still that super high mm-hmm. turnover, it's just, you're, you're just going to have the same, exactly like you said, you're going to be having the same exact conversation two or three years from now. Yeah. Uh, change it over topics a little bit. Uh, and, you know, talk about our dear friends, mm-hmm. FMCSA, they love to give, all kinds of industries, all kinds of exemptions from the hours of service rules. You, we've had God knows mm-hmm. oh, an insurmountable number of COVID-related exemptions, and some going on for longer than you know. I personally feel needed or was necessary, and for commodities that I, I fully feel what necessary. Uh, we've seen here in the last few months some uh, some pushes from some uh, individual drivers. Uh, most uh, mm-hmm. most well known is the Leland Schmidt application that uh, went through and was rejected. And uh, I just w- would know we he talks to them pretty regularly if they're trying it again. But we've also mm-hmm. seen some pure foolishness of some drivers putting in applications that you know is going to get knocked out, which we don't know if those are from trolls or yeah. actual truck drivers. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you what is what is the stance of OIDA on, you know, individual drivers that have driven four, three, four, five million safe miles, 20, 30, 40 years of giving them some leniency on the, the hours of service? You know, if it, if it interferes with their circadian rhythm, their national sleep cycle, you know, which, you know, as you age, it, 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 it changes to, you know, some people don't mm-hmm. want to, some drivers want to stay up at night. You know, they don't go to sleep till two, three in the morning. And, you know, it's, it, it, what is the stance on that? Yeah. I mean, I think for a long time, what we've been telling FMCSA is even after the the initial hours of service reform is that, um, you know, there still needs to be more flexibility for drivers. And what we've, we've said is in a, you know, the, these individual exemption requests and these industry exemption requests kind of just show the, I don't know if insanity is the right word or the impossibility of coming up with one set of regulations that, um, you know, that is going to work for thousands and thousands and thousands of drivers. And, you know, we've always said it would be helpful if there's a way that you could give more flexibility, especially to experienced drivers, um, you know, that have millions of miles of safe driving that have decades of experience in the industry. So uh, I think that's something that we are, we, we, I know we are continuing to tell the agency is, you know, look for more ways to um, have hours of service flexibility, like um, more split sleeper options, uh, pausing the 14 hour clock. Uh, the other thing that we've told them to is please take a really close look at the data that you're collecting from the use of those emergency waivers that you mentioned. 
we know that, uh, you know, the, the exemptions that were granted under the, the you know, the COVID-19 pandemic were, were unprecedented. And so we should have a, a good amount of data and the agency should have a good set of data to work from on that. Um, that's one of the other frustrations that we have is, you know, FMCSA is always like data, data, data. You need to show us how will this make things safer? Um, and with all the data that they should have uh, as a result of this waivers, we think they should have an opportunity to uh, move forward on some additional flexibility. So you know, I, I think all, all along we've been saying is, you know, they, they need to look more generally because uh, it, it's just impossible to have any kind of one regulation or kind of one set of regulations like you do with hours of service that's going to work for everyone. Yeah, having talked to Lisa and Leland recently, the, the plan of attack going forward in this is that they're trying to get the word out to most to a lot of truck drivers out there. Most drivers like myself, we didn't even know that you can file for an exemption as an individual driver. Mm-hmm. Um, when I started looking at the list of all the exemptions handed out to different companies and for what reasons, it was really shocking to me because you could have a driver that's brand new in a truck with a CDL for you know a month and they're hauling you know toilet paper and they get all kinds of crazy mm-hmm. exemptions from the hours of service. Versus somebody like yeah. like Leland, where he's been driving for 30, yeah. 40 years, I think I believe, and uh, he's still got to drive just like everybody else, and it just doesn't it doesn't work. Um, like when yeah. I was at the postal service, because we're we're local, you know, we had exemptions from everything. We don't even have um, license plates on the trucks. And hmm. before yeah. the postal service, I was a arms, ammunitions, and explosives contractor. So we had we still had to, um, we had one exemption from hours of service, and that was the new. 30 minute break rule. Um, but I believe that's gone now too. Mm, but, mm-hmm. um, most of our exemptions were like, you know, permits for crossing into States and, you know, hazmat related, not, mm-hmm. not hours of service related. Um, but back, back to their, so their, their plan right now is they're going to keep hammering FMCSA with applications until finally they get approved. Once they get approved, they're going to see hopefully a flood of drivers that basically copy and paste their application with the same, you know, backgrounds and credentials that they have. And the hope mm-hmm. that they're hoping for, the, the plan that they're hoping happens is the FMC, FMCSA gets so overburdened with application exemption applications that finally driver's voices get heard because they've been, you know, we've been, we've been screaming about this for years, how the exemptions aren't, aren't mm-hmm. applied fairly. Um, and it seems like nobody there is listening. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, even on industries, anytime an industry specific request has come up, you know, I think that's kind of been our message is, uh, you know, there's no need to pick winners or, or losers on these types of things. You just need to look at it more holistically. Yeah. And I, I kind of hearken it to, I, I would see this same planning uh, in the postal service. So you, you see this in a lot of government agencies where somebody hatches a plan and that plan is put into effect. And like you were saying, you're, they're all about data, data, data. But then once they start getting data that doesn't match the initial planned outcome, mm-hmm. nobody steps back and says, oh, the plan is wrong or we're not implementing it right. The, the, the thinking is, oh, we're just not implementing the plan hard enough. And so there's a lot of double downing mm-hmm. on these things. I, I would see this in the Postal Service all the time. And we had a previous guest on our podcast, Mike Millard, who used to be at the FMCSA. And we asked him, like, what the heck? You know, why, why does this stuff happen? And he said, a lot of times what happens is the person who comes up with this idea, they reti- they, they, they hatch the idea, it gets passed, and then that person retires. They're long gone. Yeah, and then so by the time everyone's cleaning up the mess, it's like, okay, who do we pin this on? And it was like, oh, that was Mike. Mike's gone. <laughs> Good luck. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, not to, not to digress too far, but I think another example of that is, is we, you know, we're watching out on a speed limiter mandate. Um, oh, you know, yeah. that was something that was petitioned FMCSA and it's started on it. Um, kind of fell off Trump administration, put it on the back burner, put it away. And now it's, it's popped up again. So, uh, right. That's another one where, you know, we think pretty, believe pretty strongly that the data is in our corner that if you're, um, you know, making ever, if you're creating these speed differentials out on the road, you're going to increase, uh, risk of crashes, um, make it less safe for drivers. But, um, you know, how do you get that through to the, to the FMCSA? So that's, that's another ongoing one. You know, there's been thousands of comments on that one too. Yeah. Cause you, you could tell people all the data related to crashes and it's just like in one year mm -hmm. out the other, it's like, yes, Crashes at high speed are absolutely horrific, and it's such a tragedy when they happen. Mm -hmm. The vast, vast, vast majority of track of, of wrecks with semis involve are involved at lower speeds. I don't think people listen yeah. or even care about that talking point. For me, the most effective one I've always used is okay. You know how frustrating it is when you're stuck behind a semi trying to pass another semi. Now make that every yep. single truck on the road across the country, and then all of a sudden people were like, "Oh yeah, I don't mm -hmm. want that." Yeah, you know, it's the, yeah, it's not so 100%. much the it's not so much the safety that's going to get you on your side. It's it's the frustration because everybody knows how frustrating it is being stuck behind two trucks trying to pass each other. Yeah, and we had a, we had a previous guest as well, um, Mike Williams. He's from Australia, and he was warning us. He's like, "Don't do mm -hmm. it. Don't don't let them pass it." You know, we've we've had speed speed limiters in Australia for years now, and it is it is the absolute worst. And they don't even have the same kind of like interstate system we have. You know, it's a much smaller population country. And their mm -hmm. roads, you know, they have much narrower roads, lo less traffic, and it's it's a nightmare even for them. Yeah, you know, and if I could just put a so, you know, that's something that we're fighting um, on the regulatory side. We've submitted our comments. Uh, we'll be looking to fight that on the legislative side as well. Um, if I could just put a plug in too for for our advocacy website, it's fightingfortruckers.com, and that's where we, um, you know, we keep our members and even non-members. You can sign up for for updates. Um, for legislative updates, regulatory updates, we had you know we had thousands of comments submitted just through our our advocacy webpage on the speed limiter, uh, on the speed limiter proposal, and uh, you know to your point and your question like does this make a difference? Um, uh, at, at some level, it definitely does. You know we've heard from FMCSA that you know there's a lot of comments we're going to need to go through here, so it at a minimum will force them to take their time and possibly draw out this process, but um, you know just. I'd like to highlight that's a really important part of what we do at OYDA is um, uh, enabling our members and enabling any truckers to to, to get involved with you know, the legislative process or the regulatory process. Uh, it is getting to the end of the year. Snows have started to fall. We've had a couple of blizzards. Uh, you know, it's kind of dying down. A lot of companies are shutting down. We're already starting to see some furloughs. Uh, most famous the FedEx mm -hmm. furlough, where they're uh, putting off a good portion of their drivers, offering them $300 a week and uh, sit-down pay. If they decide to come back to FedEx mm -hmm. after the 90-day furlough, uh, with the market as it is kind of being in the bottom and also the freight cycle, coincidentally, you know, one of the worst ever, uh, what is OIDAC and the amount of furloughs we're going to have this year and uh, – what are what is the, the the company doing to help out on that front? You know, I to be honest, that's not something I'm as you know specifically familiar with as far as numbers on an 
uh, you know, on an outlook on, you know, what furlough numbers might look not, might look like. Um, I do know that, you know, as we hear from our members, we are hearing, uh, you know, we are hearing about low freight rates. Uh, we are hearing about those challenges. Um, and I mean, I think from, you know, from where I sit, kind of from the, uh, you know, from the legislative and regulatory perspective, um, and having some knowledge about what we do as an association, I think, you know, what we try and do for owner operators is make sure that they're, you know, they're set up to be as successful as they can be as a business, um, and also fight for them, uh, you know, on the legislative and regulatory side for policies that are going to help them continue to be successful. Um, you know, we know, uh, you know, you talk to our, uh, you know, our, our president, Todd Spencer, or, or our vice president, Louis Pugh, um, you know, they've been in the industry for, for, for a long time. We have a board made up of members with, you know, decades and decades and decades of experience. And, um, you know, they all know that the, the industry is cyclical and there's going to be up and down times. So uh, as I, I think as an organization, we kind of we recognize that that's part of the industry. And so what really we're trying to do is, um, again, to, to make sure drivers are prepared to be as successful uh, as they can be and they can understand, you know, um, while it may have been things, rates may have been going well, especially after the initial onset of the pandemic, um, you know, there, there's a, a good chance things may get more challenging. So, uh, again, I think it's kind of just making sure folks understand uh, and drivers understand how, how can they can be successful. And we're just trying to keep keep bad policies out of the way, things like speed limiters that'll slow our drivers down. Or one of the things that we were really proud to be successful on is, um, uh, you know, the push to increase minimum insurance requirements, which we would have, which we know would have knocked a lot of, a lot of our members out of business. They just couldn't afford it. So, um, you know, we're, we're doing everything we can to, to help our members out. Is, um, in cab facing cameras, one of those, is that something you guys are fighting? I don't, <clears throat> I don't, to be honest, I don't think we've seen anything come across on that. I don't think I've seen anything on that. Um, okay as far as a mandate or requirements. Yeah. I know a lot of mega carriers are using them now because, you know, they self, they self insure and it's like a easy yep. way to get out of, you know, these, these big um, nuclear verdicts. Um, it's also a good way to get trapped yep. into one too. Um, <laughs> when I was a contract, yeah. <laughs> when I was a contractor with the postal service. Um, a lot of a, one I was driving for, they just started putting them in. And then that was when I was like, all right, I'm out of here. Um, I, yeah. I tell these companies too, what's, what's awesome about having a platform like this, you know, being a driver and I get to talk to you know, yeah. these big companies is like, I tell them, this is going to drive your best drivers away. You know, you're always yeah. talking about, you know, how hard it is finding drivers right now. Okay. Good luck. Yep. You know, you're, you're going to be scraping the bottom of the barrel, so to speak. Um, you know, having these things in your truck. And I, I, I understand why you want them or maybe even need them in, your, in the trucks, but you got to also understand like, this is going to be chasing away your best, your best talent. Absolutely. 100%. I mean, you know, like I said, our, our board members and a lot of our members are, are veterans of the industry and it's stuff like that, that will push them out. Um, I, I believe uh, it's recently gotten more attention, but you know, FMCSA is looking at uh, a universal electronic identifier or what we're kind of calling trackers on truckers. Um, uh, mm. You know, basically a remote ID that would beam information to law enforcement as you drive by. So whether it's uh, things like, you know, for some drivers inward facing cameras, or if it's a, you know, a tracking device, an identification device, um, you know, those are the things that are just 
going to push people away. It's going to take away what they like about the job. Uh, and at the end of the day, it's not really making anybody safer. You know, there's all, you know, talking about ELDs or anything else. Sure. You can, uh, you know, have all the compliance you want and try and make sure everyone's abiding by every last rule, but what is the ultimate safety outcome here? So that's, that's something that we've always focused on as well as, you know, what is this really doing for safety and was it, what is it doing for, for drivers? And, to your point, if you're pushing experienced drivers out of the industry, you're not going to be replacing them with drivers who are as safe. Yeah. And it's going to require even more safety compliance officers and even more, yep. you know, yep. safety, um, uh, even, even more surveillance in the truck. So it's, it's, it's really a race mm-hmm. to the bottom. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So. Every once in a while, it is good to hear back from some of our constituents up in DC, you know, what's going on behind the scenes, behind the, the guardrails and fences that are up around the Capitol building nowadays. And, you know, mm-hmm. from everything from the infrastructure act spending to the rest areas mm-hmm. to the mm-hmm. going through with the driver facing cameras, any ELD, you know, it's always mm-hmm. good for drivers to be, be on top of that because, you know, that directly affects them. And, last thing you want to do is you want to be caught slipping when anything dealing with federal regulations that can really, really bite you in the yep. rear end on that. So, uh, you know, Bryce, it was good having you on the show t- today and, you know, hope we can catch back up with you here, you know, a couple of months and see what's going on. You know, after the first of the year, we get that new 118th Congress put in and uh, see, mm-hmm. see what the, f- see what the fun is when you have Republicans on one side and, uh, Democrats over in the other house and see if anything gets passed in two years and in, in the lame duck. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is, uh, is DC more like house of cards or is it more like the show Veep? Uh, I would, yeah, it's definitely more like Veep, <laughs> you know, uh, that's probably all I want to say about that. But yeah, I mean, uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's more like Veep. But uh, no, I really appreciate the opportunity to come on. Um, it, it's really great to be able to talk to you guys uh, and uh, would like to be able to come on for an update in the future uh, to, to give progress. You know, I think truck parking is one of those issues where maybe we, we Congress can get something done because it is bipartisan. It's something everyone agrees on. Um, and, and like I said before, I'll just plug one last time. Our, our advocacy website, fightingfortruckers.com. Uh, you can stay up to date in the meantime, uh, and see everything that we're doing. And we really tailor that information to, you know, to owner operators and, uh, you know, to the driver. So I'm um, just trying to put out what's most relevant. So thank you again. I, I, we really appreciate the opportunity. Oh, thank you so much for your time. You've been very generous. No, no, no. Thank you all. I really do appreciate it. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I am James Rister Bowen here with just super trucker Martin and Bryce from the legislative side of OIDA or OIDA or however you want to pronounce it. Uh, we will catch you guys down the road and uh, get you guys up, up to date next week. Mm-hmm.